I wanted to start this sermon off with a joke, and there were two that I knew. I spent a long time trying to figure out which one would work better to kick things off, and I couldn't, so I'm going to tell them both. The first is an old joke about a man who is rescued after 30 years of living on a deserted island, and when the rescuers show up to bring him home, uh, one of them notices that there are three huts built on the beach uh, where this man has clearly been living, and, and he's curious about this, and so the rescuer asks the man, he says, what, what are these huts for? Uh, he points at the first one and says, what was this one all about? And the man says, well, that, that was my home, obviously. And the rescuer says, well, of course, that makes sense. Figured one of them must be your home, but those other two got me confused. Uh, what's that second hut? And the, the man says, well, that was my church. Sure, says the rescuer, but what about that third hut? Well, that, the man says with a sneer, well, that's the church I used to go to. Here's the second joke. I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing at the edge, about to jump off. So I ran over and I said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. And I said, well, there's, there's so much to live for. And he said, like what? I said, well, are, are you religious or atheist? And he said, religious. I said, me too. Are, are you Christian or are you Buddhist? And he said, Christian. I said, me too. Are, are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, wow, me too. Are, are you Methodist or Baptist? And he said, Baptist. And I said, wow, me too. Oh, are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of our Lord? And he said, Baptist Church of God. I said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? And he said, Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, wow, me too. Are, are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. And I said, heretic? And I pushed him off. The church has developed a reputation over the years for being divided. Over centuries, the church has split over and over and over again, disagreements large and, and small. In fact, the history of the church is defined in its splits, in places where it broke apart and reformed into new groups. And to be clear, in the context of our broken world, in a church that is run by broken people, these splits have sometimes become a necessary thing. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses of the wall to the wall of the Catholic Church, uh, just over 500 years ago, hoping to produce change within the Catholic Church itself. When he was met with persecution and attack, he ended up splitting off in what is now known as the Protestant Reformation, which we Mennonites came out of. But just as the Church is human, it is also supernatural. It is God's. Just as the Scriptures are God-breathed, but written by human hand in a human language, in human context, and just as Jesus himself was fully human, while also being fully God, the church, which is called Christ's body, somehow exists in this place where it is both God's institution and creation and also an organization of confused and sinful and, and broken people. So it's maybe not surprising, but it's still a question that we have to ask. Why do we, the global church, and we, the local church, get it wrong so often. What are we missing? 
We're starting a series today that is going to take us through till Easter on the book of 1 Corinthians, which takes dead aim at this question. This is an incredibly important book for the church because it takes this issue of unity and it grapples with it head on in the middle of a really tough situation. And you're going to notice a pattern in the titles of the sermons for this series. The ending is pretty consistently throughout in the church. Something in the church. That's sort of the, the titling format that we have here. And that might seem a little bit redundant or repetitive. Obviously, we're in the church. But it is driving home an important point for this book. In all things throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is wrestling with and is calling the Corinthian church to wrestle with what does it mean to be the body of Christ? What does it mean to be united as a church. And it's important to remember when this book was written. Scholars pretty confidently place the time of writing around 55 AD. That's only 25 years after Jesus' death. Most of the members of the church here, while they didn't likely know or meet Jesus personally, were alive when Jesus was alive. The church here is in its infancy. People are just beginning to figure out what it means to be Christ's body. There is no New Testament yet. The, the Gospel of Mark, which is the first Gospel to be written chronologically, they believe that's the first one that was written, won't be put to paper for probably another 15 or 20 years. And there are no Baptists or Lutherans or Catholics or Protestants. There is just the church. This is it. And yet it is, it is already extremely messy. Whatever the problems uh, you might think of when you think of Pleasant Valley here, or whatever the problems you might have experienced at other churches in your lifetime, uh, they probably had nothing on the Corinthians. And first, let's look at the context for this church. This church is based out of Corinth. And, uh, and this is a city that existed, of course, in this time. And the main temple in Corinth was to uh, a Greek goddess named Aphrodite. And she was the goddess of love and pleasure. And this temple at times was staffed by over 1,000 uh, priestesses who offered love and pleasure. And, and the city itself was on an important trade route. It was a port city, so sailors from all over the known world are passing through on a regular, a regular basis and bringing all sorts of wacky ideas about religion and philosophy and morality all while getting drunk and partying. And there was a huge emphasis in the city on seeking pleasure in whatever way you wanted to. Uh, the name of the city, in fact, became synonymous with the idea of living wild and free. If you called somebody a Corinthian woman, that was not a kind thing. That was like calling her a prostitute. And to Corinthianize... The verb to Corinthianize in that time meant to live a promiscuous party life. You can think of Corinth as maybe a, a more extreme version of Las Vegas. And Paul, the author of this book, came and lived in Corinth for around nine months, they believe, and started up this church. So now there is this Christian church there. It's filled with new believers who are just beginning to figure out what it means to live for Christ. There are Jewish converts that are coming from a life focused on following rules 
and obeying commandments, and one of them is an especially fiery and effective preacher named Apollos, who is starting to develop quite a following. And there are also Gentiles from every walk of life, most of them coming out of a life with few rules and few morals. And these people, these humans, are now the church. And as you can imagine, it's a bit of a mess. The church is in danger of fracturing into a bunch of small cults, following one preacher or another preacher or rejecting any form of human leadership at all. Sexual immorality is rampant. Some of the members are visiting prostitutes. One church member is having an affair with his stepmother. I don't know who gets chapter 5 in this one, but that'll be interesting. Uh, Instead of talking through the problems... They are suing each other in court. They are having debates about all sorts of things, about the role of women in church, about prophecies and speaking in tongues, about salvation through grace versus works, and even some of them are debating the resurrection of Christ. And if I was Paul, if I was the church planter in Corinth, and I had left, and I heard about what was going on in Corinth, I can imagine how I would have started my letter. I would have started my letter like a scolding parent. I tried to teach you how to be Christians, and this is where you end up? I don't even know if I can call you a church the way you're behaving. You totally missed everything I was trying to teach you. You are clearly following after human desires, not God's. How did everything get so dysfunctional so quickly? You're an embarrassment to the rest of Christianity. I guess trying to start a church in Corinth was a lost cause. It's a mess of a city. I should have known If there's anyone there still wanting to be a Christian after this mess, pack your bags and get out. Head over to Philippi. They seem to have their heads on straight. But that's not the tone that Paul strikes here. Listen to how he introduces this letter to the first, well, this first letter to the Corinthian church. And I'm going to read right from the beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. It says this, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack in any spiritual gift, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That doesn't sound right, does it? How can Paul hear about the mess of a church in Corinth and still call them sanctified in Christ Jesus to be his holy people? How can he say, for in him, in Jesus, you have been enriched in every way? Or that they will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can he even say grace and peace to you from God? I think he can say it because he understands something deep here about following Christ and about what it means to be the church. 
uh, in the NASB translation of these verses, which doesn't always read very easily, but makes a huge effort to stay as close as possible to the original Greek, uh, verse 2 reads like this. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Saints by calling. Not saints by action here, but saints by calling. As the church, we have been called to something greater. And even when our actions are not lining up with that calling, we are still sanctified in Christ Jesus along with the church and are saints by that calling. Paul spends his time in this letter here trying to teach the church in Corinth about how to become better Christians. But the first thing he does is he establishes, you are the church. You are the church. You've made mistakes. You're currently making mistakes. But you are the church of God. You have been given a new identity. You are a part of a new family. And you have a new calling. Church knew, uh, Paul knew that the church in Corinth didn't need to be given up on or moved away from or split up. They needed to be reoriented towards their calling. Paul is confirming in the Corinthians that even though they are failing in a lot of ways at being church, they are still covered by God's grace and they are still called to be his people and they are still given gifts and security in his sacrifice. I remember hearing a story about the Golden Gate Bridge, the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was built back in the 30s in, in two distinct phases. And during the first phase, there was no safety net underneath. There were really no safety uh, devices to speak of. And over that process, 23 men fell to their deaths. For the final part of the project, though, a safety net was used. And at least 10 men fell into that net and had their lives saved while they were working. But more interesting than that, to me, is the fact that once those nets were in place, the work sped up significantly. The second half of the bridge was completed in no time compared to the first half. Why? Because the men that were working had assurance of their safety. They knew that they were safe from death. Paul starts off his letter to the 1 Corinthians by throwing out a safety net. Yes, there are going to be things to work through in the rest of this letter. Yes, there are significant and important ways that the church in Corinth needs to change. But God has us covered. Through Christ Jesus, the church can proceed in its work with complete confidence in our relationship with God. And that's a really important foundation that Paul establishes in these first nine verses. Once that safety net is established, he wastes no time moving on to the main problem in the church, and it's disunity. Verses 10 to 12 read as follows. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 
What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. The primary issue that Paul brings up here, the first thing that he talks about isn't immorality or bad theology or the way that they run services or the way that they use spiritual gifts. That stuff will be addressed later in the letter. But he starts off here with the issue of church unity. Clearly the Corinthian church has picked favorites. Different groups are holding certain leaders above others, some following Paul, some following Apollos, some following Cephas, which is the Greek name for the disciple Peter, the head of the early church. And still others follow Christ. The church is splintering apart. And how does Paul combat this? Well, Paul is very clever in what he does next. Over the next four verses, he calls the Corinthians back through use of some hypothetical or rhetorical questions and some simple facts. He calls the Corinthians back to three simple foundational truths. And these truths form the bedrock that everything else is going to be built on from here on out. So I'm going to focus on these three truths. In the next few verses, he says this. This is verses 13 uh, through to 17. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here's the first truth that I want to talk about. Christ is not divided. He is one. Paul is talking about where the church is at, splitting apart, following different leaders, and he asks a simple question. Is Christ divided? The answer is obviously no. And, and there are two reasons why this truth is important. First, we are all a part of the body of Christ. Later in 1 Corinthians, in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Christ's body is not split apart. It is whole. And if we try to make ourselves more important or separate from other members, it would be a contradiction of the Savior that we follow, of the body that we are a part of. The other reason why it's relevant to say that Christ is not divided is to remind the Corinthian churchgoer and to remind us that when a believer has Christ, when you have Jesus, you have all of Jesus. You understand? If you have Jesus, you have all of Jesus. It can be tempting to think sometimes that other people somehow have more of God than you do. That they've unlocked some special level of intimacy. That they have some special understanding that you don't have. Or they have some special level of closeness. But Christ is not divided. You don't only have a part of Jesus. You have been given all of who Jesus is. None of us is better than the other. We are all equal, and we all have need in Christ. 
So that's the first point. Christ is not divided. He is one. Here's the second truth that Paul brings out. Paul wasn't crucified for you. Christ was. Paul asks two more rhetorical questions here that sort of play into the same idea. Was Paul crucified for you? And were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, the answers are obvious. And Paul, by the way, does something very smart here. If he had started off by attacking another party, if he had started off by talking about Apollos in this way, he would have played right into the hands of the splintering church. He would have played right into the hands of the Paul followers who would have now had ammunition for themselves and exaggerated the split. And so he immediately destroys himself as grounds for boasting. I was not crucified for you. You were not baptized into my name. And again, there are two effects that this truth should have on us. One is that when it comes to boasting about someone, let it be God. Let it be God. Verse 31 in this chapter says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Compared to what Christ has done for us, a good sermon or a kind gesture is nothing. To elevate a human teacher or leader, no matter how eloquent or intelligent, is losing sight of the infinite and overwhelming worth of Jesus Christ crucified. The other effect that this truth should have on us is to remind us that our sin is so great that we needed to be saved by nothing less than the execution of the Son of God. And so did all of our teachers and leaders. To boast in a man, to puff him up, or to puff ourselves up for following, means that we have forgotten about the wretched condition that we are all in without a crucified Savior. I read this line and I loved it. Um, uh, someone was talking, a, a commentary was talking about these verses and, and the commentary writer wrote, the cross breaks the back of boasting. And so the cross also breaks the back of disunity and lays a new foundation for unity in the church. The cross breaks the back of boasting. And Paul's question about baptism drives home the same point. Paul says he is glad he did not baptize more in order to avoid exaggerating the confusion that is happening in Corinth. Paul is reminding the Corinthians here, it doesn't matter who baptized you. It matters what you were baptized into. It matters the covenant that was prayed over you in your baptism. Paul is saying, you contradict the meaning of your baptism if you're bragging about the man who put you under the water. He is nothing compared to Christ. And not only that, but the very meaning of baptism is death to yourself and life to God. How then can you think to make baptism a means of asserting the old self and boasting? So the second truth is Paul wasn't crucified for you, Christ was. And my third truth is that man shouldn't get the glory. God should. 1 verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And we see this echoed later on in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, which says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? 
And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So here is the last truth that undermines or, or disarms the Corinthian boast in their human teachers, the Corinthian disunity that is forming. God should get all the glory, not man. And we can see this in two phrases. First, in verse 5, where it says that Paul and Apollos were only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. The power to believe the gospel came through a man, came through Paul and Apollos' obedience. But the task, the calling for that, was given to them by God. God deserves the glory for their conversion, not a preacher. And in verse 7, it is even clearer. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God makes things grow. Paul makes himself small, lest he rob the cross of its power, and he reminds the church in Corinth that their focus is in the wrong place. I painted a pretty rough picture of the issues in the city of Corinth, as well as the Corinthian church early on. But the fact is that we are not that far removed from where they were. We live in a society that is focused on pleasure, on sex, on selfishness, and we still face issues of unity in the church, issues of authority, issues of theology, issues on how to work together. First Corinthians is an extremely practical letter that works through these things that we still fight with here in our present day. So as we begin to walk through this book, let us look at the next weeks within the context of how Paul starts off this letter. Let us remember that no matter what our differences, no matter what issues we are facing individually or as a community, that we are sanctified. That word literally means to be made holy or to be cleansed. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We have a safety net. We are made blameless by his sacrifice and we are called to be his holy people, the church. And resting in that promise, trusting in that net, we must be unified. We are called to be unified because Christ is not divided. We have everything we need in him. Christ was crucified. Not a man, not a doctrine, not a theological issue, but Christ himself. And God is the one who produces all spiritual fruit and deserves all the glory in our lives and in the life of the church. Amen.